and welcome to the evidence-based EdTech series. Thanks to the wonderful Sophie Bailey, I'm now hosting this series. My name's Rose Luckin, I'm a professor at University College London and founder of Educate Ventures Research. Now it's clear that demand for educational technology has increased significantly in the last few years and the global market forecast is that the educational technology market will reach the size of $370 billion by 2026. That's a lot of money and we really do need to know if that's money well spent. In this series, I want to connect leading expertise and opinion from the worlds of edtech, AI, research and education and uncover how we build ethical learning tools for teaching and learning that are genuinely informed by the evidence, providing educators, parents and students with the information they need to make wise decisions about the edtech to buy and how it may be applied for maximum benefit. So in today's episode, I want to examine the state of technology in work, training and mentorship and ask what role evidence plays when we're dealing with environments where usually productivity is the thing that's measured. How do we know that the technology encountered by the current and future workforce benefits them? Are we measuring the right kind of productivity? Is there a risk that basically we're leaving people behind by not giving them the opportunity to develop that fluency? What do employability, recruitment and skills look like in the age of the portfolio career? So I am thrilled today in the Zoom studio. I have a great group of guests. We have Nick Kind, who's Managing Director at Titan Partners, David Gallagher, who's Chief Executive Officer at NCFE, and John Gleeman, who's Executive Vice President at Learnosity. And I'm going to kick off with a basic question. With such a wealth of experience in the room, are the skills, the ways of working, ways of thinking, ways of measuring success that schools teach young people appropriate for today's world of work? Nick, I'd like to start with you, please. And I know that you both personally and through your role at Titan Partners have been very active in the area of the future of work. So I'd love you to tackle that question. And also, as you're doing so, tell us a little bit about Titan Partners and the work that you do. Hi, Rose. Um, good afternoon. Yes, I'm Nick Kind. I'm a, I'm a Managing Director of Titan Partners, as you said, um, and I have 25 years of um, working in, in education technology, which makes me feel very old, I have to say. Titan Partners is an organisation which uh, is slightly unusual. We are both an investment bank and a strategy consultancy, and we focus really only on the education sector around the world. Uh, and we spend a lot of time thinking about challenges and developments uh, in education, as sometimes says from pre-K to grey. Um, but we think a lot about upskilling the future of work and, and many other things with our a really wide range of customers from academic institutions to foundations and philanthropies uh, to commercial organisations. So hopefully we bring some knowledge of that. Um, here in the UK, we work a lot with the UFI VopTech Trust and UFI Ventures and produce a free range of resources uh, all about how the market is developing, particularly from a commercial point of view. To your question, um, no, frankly. Um, the, the ways of working, the ways of thinking, the ways of measuring success that we've got in sort of embedded into our current school system are a long way from being appropriate for teaching people for today's world of work, I would say. Um, you know, there are there are clear sort of exceptions um, in, in some of the areas of, of the vocational education industry. And I'm sure David can talk about that extensively more. But 
it was funny during the pandemic you know I, I saw I was going for a walk with a friend and um was talking about GCSEs and uh, said to her isn't it isn't it odd that um you know really what we incentivize our teachers to do and what we ask our our children to do at the age of 16 is is sit in serried rows of desks two meters apart from each other in silence without the use of any technology effectively regurgitating a lot of knowledge now it's a little unfair but you know i think that caricature has quite a lot to say from and, and and frankly my friend went oh yeah i'd never thought about it like that you're quite right and i think that that's a really important thing that you know we are not preparing our children for you know the way that the world of work and and life looks in the 21st century I mean, look, there is there is a tension here, which it's worth bringing out. That's the other thing to say, which is that clearly education should just not should not just be about preparing our children for the world of work. It should be about many, many more things than that. And, you know, I think you referred to my work about reimagining with with reimagining education together and, and big change. What's now becoming initiatives like the big education conversation all about what education should be for. And I think one of the problems we have in the UK and perhaps elsewhere is we don't have a really proper debate about some of that the, the final thing i'd say is that what's interesting to me is some of those things are coming together so if, if we talk about you know the famous four c's you know communication collaboration critical thinking creativity those are things which help you to succeed in life as well as in work and there's a very interesting coming together of some of the skills we need for both as we face you know a very uncertain and challenging 21st century. So I think in an ideal world, those things start together. My only hope is that sort of the folks that are deciding the accountability measures sort of engage with that in the sense that the things that are being taught are really about the accountability measures in the curriculum. It is not the teacher's fault. I would very much not want to say that, that they are teaching what they teach. They have to teach what they have to teach. We really need some leadership in my view to, to change those measures and, and, and what education is about. Well, that is a great start. Thanks for kicking off uh, the discussion in that way. I agree. Successful in life and work is a really good way of putting it, isn't it? School is about more than being prepared uh, for the workforce, but you do need the right skills and abilities um, to, to, to be successful in life and work. And certainly the challenge of assessment is huge, isn't it? As a uh, Mutual friend of ours stresses often, Nick, Jenny Anderson, I'm speaking about, you know, we treasure what we measure. And I'd now like to talk to David. Now, David, as with Nick, it would be great if you say a little bit about NCFE when you answer the same question. Uh, but also, I think you bring a personal slant uh, coming from a large family and a father of young children yourself. Um, it would be great to get your views on, you know, what are we doing? Uh, when it comes to preparing people for their future lives. Yeah, of, of course, Rose, and, and thank you uh, for the invite to join you today. Um, so NCFE, uh, first and foremost, is an educational charity. We've been around uh, since the original Industrial Revolution. Uh, and, and of course, we're now at the fourth Industrial Revolution. And, and I think one of the things uh, that, that, that I've found is the ways in which we assess in, in some respects has not changed that that much. 
since the original industrial revolution. Do you know the ways the ways that we teach in the mainstream, the ways that sometimes uh, learning uh, happens in the mainstream, and then the way we assess hasn't necessarily moved on consistently across the board in in, in all parts, which I. I find absolutely fascinating as the world has changed. So we're, we're an educational charity at the heart of what we do. We're an awarding organisation. So that's the design, development and quality assurance of qualification. So assessment is our bread and butter. And then also in, uh, assessment for apprenticeships as well through, through endpoint assessment. And we predominantly focus in vocational and technical. Um, and, and I think Nick made the point that actually in vocational and technical, maybe we are more fit for purpose in, in, in some regards, uh, but, but actually policy direction seems to be taking us more towards how assessment happens in the general qualification world than, than how it maybe has done in recent times in, in vocational and technical. And, you know, there's a big debate there as to whether that's a, a, a retrograde step or not. Um, so, I mean, a couple of things around measuring success, first of all, and, and I know this is absolutely stating the obvious, but I don't think we're always clear as to why we're why we're, we're assessing what we're assessing, um, what it is we're actually assessing, how we're assessing, when we're assessing, how often we're assessing. Uh, and that there seems to be these huge oversimplifications in, in our mainstream education that it's it's either formative and it's or it's summative and it's either knowledge or it's skills. And well, actually, it, it, it's not always the case. You know, it's not always as, as simple as that. Um, and we have seen a massive shift towards high stake endpoint assessment. Uh, we've, uh, as Nick alluded to, you know, we, we seem to place a, a huge level of importance on knowledge recall when we live in a society that is awash with information. And, and, and I would argue that whilst, of course, knowledge rich curriculum has all sorts of benefits to it, uh, a, a young person's ability to discern the truth from the information that's available to them, I think is probably more important in my view. And certainly, you know, and this is what I'll be uh, sort of helping my, my own children develop, discerning the truth is more important than being, being able to recall some ob obtuse fact that could be looked up relatively easily. Uh, and, and I think also a worrying trend alongside this um, sort of knowledge piece is that uh, through, through censorship and through uh, fact checkers, we also seem to be encouraging people and not just young people, but, but the, the world at large to, to outsource our critically thinking brains to somebody else to tell us what the truth is rather than try, trying to discern that. So, so this whole piece around uh, not knowledge rich curriculum and an emphasis on uh, assessment that is about knowledge recall is, is, is deeply worrying, actually, uh, uh, particularly given where we are as, as a world uh, and, and as a society and information be, being available uh, readily for most people, anytime, anywhere. There's a, a couple of things in terms of what we, we assess that, that I'll just touch on really briefly. Um, so most of the assessment that we have happen in our system that is summative or synoptic or it's endpoint and it's often high stakes is what, what I describe as transactional assessment. So it's assessing whether you've passed or you've failed, you've got an A or a B, it's a distinction or a merit, it's, it's a, a go or a stop. And little... Is, is then derived from that in terms of informing the individual, the educator, the educational institution as to what's actually working uh, and what could happen next, should happen next, absolutely must happen next for, for that particular individual. Um, and so, so for me, I think there's a, a huge, huge opportunity for us to shift more of whatever assessment takes place in the system, whether that's diagnostic assessments to inform a choice, whether that's Microformative assessments that are, you know, delivered in in sort of real time after an episode of learning, serving up information to an individual and an educator, or whether it's big 
summative assessments that are then across a whole cohort, a whole sort of uh, uh, group, there's an opportunity there to, to look at the rich vein of information that's available to inform individuals, educators and educational institutions as to what's working and what's not and, and what might need to be improved. And, and, and I've long been baffled uh, that, that and, and this is one of the other things I would say about how we assess and, you know, the high stakes sort of shift that we've seen in shift towards high stakes that we've seen in recent years. So many people are fearful of our formal uh, assessments within mainstream education. Yet the same people, if you ask them to do a diagnostic assessment through which they will find out about themselves and that may be of use to them, uh, people often get excited. And, and so why, why is it, you know, a high stakes assessment, so scary for so many people, yet a diagnostic assessment, which is just a different form of assessment, really interesting and really exciting. And I think the key is that with one, you know, there's a maybe a low stakes element to it and a high stakes element, but also one is a real opportunity to learn, whereas we don't treat our summative assessments as an opportunity to learn. So I, I think why we assess, how we assess, what we assess, how often we assess, uh, do you know, all of these things need a fundamental relook because it's not fit for, do you know, the world that we now live in and the economy we live in. Fascinating. Thank you, David. And I really like your emphasis on discerning the truth being more important than being able to recall the truth. And it reminds me of work done in the 60s uh, with Harvard graduates where researchers wanted to actually explore what we might call their epistemic cognition, their, their understanding of where knowledge came comes from, what knowledge was. And people were shocked at the time to discover that actually even these well-educated uh, young people actually had quite naive personal epistemologies, feeling that knowledge was something that was given to them rather than something they need to actively construct. And so I think what you're saying about discerning the truth really speaks to that need to actively construct your understanding and make judgments about whether what you're being told is true or not. You know, is it what you want to believe? And in, in the world of so much fake news and goodness knows how many sources of dubious information, it seems even more important. And yet we're not really moving that way. I, I think it's extremely interesting. And on the subject of assessment, John, you are in a, in a really uh, key place, I think, uh, to speak to this question. Thank you. And I really agree with both what Nick and, 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 and David said. Lenosity is an assessment engine which powers EdTech and other learning platforms. We, we're uh, one of the largest players in the space. We deliver about a billion assessments per year. I'm uh, the founder of Question Mark, and I've been working, which is now part of Lenosity, and I've been working in assessment for over 30 years. So I guess I feel even a little bit older than you, Nick. And really, assessment both provides the evidence that that we need for all the different th things we're talking about, and also is a gateway to life life chances. And I'm really passionate about inclusivity and equity and making assessment fair for all. And I think that's uh, sort of picking up on something that. Um, uh, was said earlier, I think assessment needs to be inclusive and we need to make sure that everybody benefits from assessment. And clearly, there's there's huge weaknesses in high stakes assessment in the UK and other countries. Uh, there's a lot of positive stuff, I think, having a formative assessment and, and technology, but assessment just like those have said, just too often focuses on knowledge recall when the real life, either work or, or life, you can just Google for answers. And key skills that I think we need to be focusing on more are things like digital literacy, data literacy, ability to learn, teamwork, critical thinking and problem solving. And I mean, I'm very happy also with the four C's that were mentioned earlier, but 
in too many countries, assessment is is a bit stuck in the past. I also think that the, 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 what David said about more frequent assessments and uh, not all of it being high stake makes makes sense. Assessments need to be embedded in the learning experience, more continuous, more digital, more more personalised, and certainly not on paper because nobody nobody knows how to write anymore. That's an interesting point. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Inclusivity and, and, and equity are super important, aren't they? And allowing everybody to have access to a fair form of assessment because it's so important for the rest of their life. Often the assessments you do are almost like the tickets that, that buy you a place for the next stage in, in your career. So I, I think it, it is really important that we get it right for sure and that we give equal access, as you say also intrigued by your your reference to learning to learn there was a really nice report from the house of lords um, select committee on ai actually um, on learning to learn being the most important future proof skill this was four or five years ago so i think that that is also in combination with some of the other skills and abilities that you and, and nick have mentioned uh, super important and indeed david's point about being able to discern the truth This episode of the Evidence-Led EdTech podcast series is sponsored by Learnosity. Learnosity is the global leader in assessment solutions, serving over 700 customers and more than 40 million learners. Its mission is to advance education and learning worldwide with best-in-class technology. Learnosity's specialized expertise and pre-built assessment APIs make it easy for modern learning platforms to quickly launch fully featured products, scale on demand, and always meet fast-evolving market needs. Visit learnosity.com today to discover how. And that brings us so nicely to the second question, where we're going to look at a more technology flavor, and in particular, think about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Because I'd now like to ask um, our guests about the balance between human intelligence in the workplace and machine intelligence, and how we work with and support human learners who become workers within our workforce with technology. How do we get that balance right? Are we giving students the best chance to leverage the kinds of technologies that they are bound to encounter in their lives and in their work? Are we enabling them to leverage those technologies to meet those needs, in particular artificial intelligence, but not exclusively? Should there be perhaps more emphasis on computational thinking or indeed learning how to learn with technology or something else in the curriculum? And this time I'd like to start with David. So what do you feel about this balance and the way in which we are or are not enabling young people to, to leverage technology to their best effect? So I'll, I'll start with, um, I suppose, a, a simple uh, way of looking at this, Rose, and, and then maybe build out if that's okay. So, so one of the things I think we're all very well aware of, and particularly in mainstream education, this, this is uh, an acute problem, is educators, teachers, teaching assistants ha are, are incredibly time poor. So, so, so there is so little time in the system. Um, and when you start thinking about AI and automation and, and uh, you know, the, the range of technologies that are out there, that my, my fear, I suppose, is that we can't even yet harness basic technologies to free up the time of educators 
to focus on the things that matter most around, I suppose, or, or in my view, matter most around social and emotional developmental needs, uh, mental health, well-being, um, deploying different maybe coaching methods, facilitating peer mentoring within a classroom, uh, getting creative, maybe getting out of the classroom and into, you know, forest school type environments, particularly, you know, at younger ages. So, so we can't yet even harness what, what I would say is very basic technologies to support with things like marking. Now, of course, markings, you know, you could argue about that quite a lot, that, that marking is one of the ways in which that uh, educators, teachers get to know their students really well in terms of, you know, strengths, capabilities, weaknesses, opportunities, areas of focus, etc. But I'm absolutely certain that, you know, harnessing what, what we would see as some fairly basic technologies could take a lot of what I've described as, as the grunt work out of it that many teachers spend every evening, every weekend and most school holidays doing just to be able to facilitate, you know, really great classroom environments and, 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 and learning environments. So, so I think my worry is that if we can't harness the basic technologies in really effective ways within our mainstream education, how do we even get to harnessing, you know, more, more complex technologies or maybe some of those more complex technologies are, are actually part, part of the answer? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure yet. Um, but the, 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 the secondary point that I would make to that, I think that for me, um, it's crucially important and, and again, stating the obvious to some extent that, that we technology is a tool and it's a tool that can help us to create uh, uh, environments and culture and mindsets that are most uh, conducive to high quality transformational learning experiences. Um, and, and I'll use something that, that I feel is, 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 is analogous. It's a, it's a little bit out of date now uh, because it's, it's a long time since this passed. But I remember reading a story, I think about seven or eight years ago, where artificial intelligence was already becoming better than doctors at spotting precancerous pre cells in uh, mammographs. And uh, the question was posed uh, within this article, uh, does that mean we'll need less doctors? And the answer was absolutely not. What it means is we'll need doctors focusing on developing different skill sets around care, around prevention, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it just meant the skill set changes and therefore the scope of the role changes because the technology comes into play and frees up humans to do what humans do best. Uh, and I think that's analogous you know, to, to the teaching environment. What is tech, where, when and where is technology better equipped than a human to undertake a particular activity? And what are the deeply uh, human skills, the social and emotional side of things in particular, finding meaning, finding human connection, finding fulfillment? Um, you know, when, when you look, uh, you, you look back at your own education experience, you look back at your, your own career experience, you always remember those teachers, those leaders, those managers that made you feel like you could take on the world, that inspired you, that motivated you, that understood you, that cared for you. Uh, do you know, I, occasionally I watch a TV program and it looks like a robot may care for a human. I'm not sure that will ever, will ever really, free, really free, feel that truly. So, so how do we free up educators to engage, to truly inspire? And I think that is all about how we harness not just technology uh, as, as a tool, but the, the data that sits around all of this, because the richness really is, is, is in the data to inform um, well, learners understand themselves, they understand their journey, educators better understand what, what might, might help in any given situation. Um, and so for me, this sort of plays to, to, to broader points about if you look at what, what the World Economic Forum says is the top 10 skills for now, it's, it's not far away, is it? Uh, 2025, there's things in there around creativity, originality, reasoning, problem solving, ideation. Um, 
learning, analytical skills. So these are the things that I think, you know, generally humans uh, are, are better at now. And then the last point I'll, I'll make, Rose, and, and this is almost a bit uh, to, 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 to contradict myself to some extent. One thing that threw me very recently was when uh, some AI-generated art won an art prize fairly recently, and it became really contentious. And it suddenly has made me stop and think, well, actually, I've, I've recently had a deep view that humans will always be better at the creative side of things. Well, actually, AI maybe is starting to challenge that. And what does that mean for humans going forward as well, both in terms of learning, career, future of work, et cetera? So I think these things are just moving so quickly. I worry that the mainstream can't harness the basics. How does it get to the really complex technologies? And with a world that never stands still, how do we help education to keep pace with everything that's going on in the world? Some big, big challenges there. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? You're right. Educators are so time poor and, and under such pressure. How on earth can they possibly even find the tiniest bit of brain space to think about these other technologies? Uh, I think it's a really good question. And I, and I like your approach of, well, we use the technologies to free up the time for the educator. And, and your point about generative AI and art, I think is really interesting because it's another example of where AI and human intelligence can work together. Because my understanding is to generate the best art, you have to understand how to write the instruction for the AI algorithm. So there is now a career journey potentially for people to become good at writing the descriptions that will generate the best art. So whose art is it? Is it the person who writes the description? Is it the AI? Is it something else? I don't know, but it's a really interesting space. Thanks, David. John, I'd love to come to you next, please. Oh, I, I think AI gives huge promise and huge peril. And I, I slightly hesitate to speak because I know you're a world expert on AI and education yourself, Rose. But uh, I think some of the uh, one example of the peril, just in a small way, perhaps, is that we used uh, short answer questions and essays to assess people, universities and elsewhere. But these new AI models like GPT-3 can generate text, which is uh, gives you a sort of passing score, as I understand it, in a lot of essays. And so there's a real risk that everybody's going to have to stop assessing that way and take account of other kinds of assessments, maybe sort of more performance-based assessments or video or audio recordings of, or, or, or real-time real stuff. But I think there's also a huge potential uh, promise for AI in terms of personalized learning, because they're forecasting 10 billion people in the, in, in, in the world. And all of those can't have, well, it's hard to get them all great teachers and uh, great, great individual stuff. So the promise that we can use AI to uh, improve the skill and the learning and the knowledge and the understanding and all these other things where we're talking about the skills that people want to have for for all those 10 billion people is wonderful and could really elevate human 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 capability but but uh so i think there's a potential inclusivity benefit there but everybody can get the best education but also we've seen in the pandemic that there's this digital divide and that some people get more uh, better online learning and better better out of it and some people don't have the equipment don't have the skills or the mentoring to be able to do it or don't have the connectivity. Uh, so I think we do need to advance the technologies of everybody and, 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 and not the few. But in terms of AI assisted, I think we're all going to have AI assistance or other machine assistance in the future. And we need to be thinking about open exams that allow you to use that and performance space that allow you to demonstrate skills and 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 how you how you how you perform and there's a lot of exciting ways of doing that already with video and audio and i'm sure more will be coming in future 
I think that's such an important point is that we do have to think very carefully about how we get those benefits from AI. I've long believed that artificial intelligence has huge potential to help us deal with the inequalities in our systems. But as humans, we have to decide that's what we're going to do. We have to consciously make the decision that we are going to ensure that that's the case. I think it's also interesting that you mentioned GPT-3, which is another generative AI algorithm, and, and, and it is interesting, these are text generation um, algorithms. And I've often been asked about issues where technology appears to be undermining our assessment system through, for example, enabling plagiarism, for example. And I think what you're referring to with GPT-3 being able to write a passable essay is, a, is another example that you could frame in that way. But I think your point, is, is really important that actually that's a call to change the assessment method. Maybe it's not the best assessment method because, you know, as David pointed out in the previous question, we're still really using assessments that were designed for many, many decades ago. And so there's an interesting impetus there, isn't there? Nick, now over to you. I know you've spent some time thinking about AI and the future of work, so I'd love to hear what you have to yeah, say. Yeah, I, I, I just kind of wanted to pick up some of these threads, actually, that, that everybody else has been talking about. I mean, just, just where you've just been, Rose, makes me mull that maybe we should be really thinking about mostly assessing what humans do best rather than trying to do the things that computers are starting to do really well. And it may even in a sort of slightly weird turn of events that we need to really think about how AI helps us assess the things that humans do best in a really effective way. I mean, you and I and, and, and I've talked in the past about the the perils and the advantages of things like effective technology, where you can recognize gestures and expressions. And, and you know, there are some interesting companies already doing that. And there's an organization called Body Swaps, for example, which which looks at how you perform in an interview using AI. So I, I mean I, I think I think that's a really interesting thing to mull over. And the thing I would build on from there, and again, picking up, you know, something that, that David and John were referring to, and we were talking about a little earlier, the best thing I think we can do for learners is to give them the ability to think critically about where the technology will help them best. So we've talked about it at a kind of macro level already. You know, governments should be thinking about where it is and isn't deployed in assessments. Institutions should be thinking about it. But actually, for me, the most important thing is to allow the individual to, to have enough knowledge about AI to really say, mm, this is leading me down a bad path. Oh, this could be useful to me here. I mean, one, one thinks obviously about the whole online safety issues and the things which are very present in Parliament at the moment, but you know, it's it's often more fundamental and 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 basic than that. I think that that's where I would go with this is is equipping that individual with the the ability to know some of the basic things. And I don't think you know often these things are dressed up. And again, this is something we've all talked about before. These things are dressed up as being incredibly complicated. But even GPT three, as far as I understand it, and I slightly defer to you here, Rose. I have to say, but you know, as is is in a way glorified pattern matching. You know, it, it's looking at a vast range of things that have been written, recognizing a pattern and recreating a pattern that it understands. And if you can phrase it to that, people will go, oh, it's looking for a pattern. That may be one of the ways of finding a way through. So that, those would be my instant reflection. I really like that. Thank you, Nick. I think it's a really interesting idea that you've brought forward about 
using AI to assess the things that humans are good at and and understanding the difference between human and artificial intelligence is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about and I do feel it's extremely important I think you know Yuval Noah Harari in his book 21 Lessons for the 21st Century finishes up by saying basically we better make sure we understand ourselves really well because AI is going to understand us better than we do if we're not careful and in a way using AI to help us understand ourselves and to help us assess the really complex human behaviors that are our human intelligence, that are our social and emotional intelligence, the way that we can interact with others, actually could be extremely useful, particularly in helping us understand ourselves better, which seems key um, to, to, to progress. But it's a complex space, isn't it? And I know that I get myself into often quite contentious debates with people about my belief that you can help anybody understand artificial intelligence if you frame it in a way that's appropriate for them. If you help them to understand it, they don't need, most people do not need to know how to program an AI algorithm. They don't need to know the complex maths that sits behind a neural network. They really, really don't. It's just like you described GPT-3. They need a simple explanation. And I think that simplicity comes from understanding the context of that individual so that you can frame the way that you talk about the AI in examples that the individual understands. So I think it is something we need to do more of. But it's challenging because, as David mentioned earlier, educators are time poor and most educators don't understand AI. So we haven't even helped them understand the basics. So Who's going to do this? Maybe it's more of a community enterprise. I'm not sure. But I do think it's something that is becoming more and more urgent. Final question. Um, I'd really like to know, in terms of portfolio careers, which is where we started with the title of this episode, it's likely that people will have a whole set of different roles across their career. So how do we prepare people for this kind of portfolio career? I would say that in a world where anybody can claim to be an expert and be on social media and say anything, then validated assessments, certifications, qualifications are really valuable because they're evidence that somebody is an expert and doesn't just claim to be an expert. So I'm a big fan of certification. You get an external qualification, an area that interests you and which is relevant to the world of work. And potentially as that changes over time, you can have a number of different certifications and perhaps they can add up to give you something unique. Um, for example, I've got a certification in, in privacy here. Of things like personal data and the GDPR, and that uh, helps me in my work, but uh, gives a different angle on my perspectives than than than, than, than other people's perspective. Um, I think it. I think uh, it's also that it's important that our tech has multiple paths, adapts to people. People are different, and people can get disengaged if it's not not for them. And I think the potential of technology to support multiple different pathways and individualizing learning is one of the most exciting areas of edtech. We've really got the opportunity to make learning relevant, equitable, and on demand for everybody. And it's a very exciting time to be in the edtech space because of that. I agree. And it really is our responsibility to try and make sure that we do enable people to benefit from that, isn't it? There's so yes. much good that can be done. And it does feel like it's our responsibility. It wouldn't be a podcast um, worth listening to if there wasn't a little bit of grit in the oyster. So I'm just going to come back at you on something that you said, John. And that is, are there other ways of 
evidencing your expertise because I completely agree with you. You know, in my own field, I'm amazed how many people are experts in AI now. People who I know quite well, and I think, oh, I didn't know you were an expert in AI. You know, and, and we see it all the time. We do. So you're completely right, and I understand the purpose of your point that that we need to be able to evidence that expertise. But are there ways other than certification? Of course, there are, and people's experience is very valuable. Uh, talking to people and understanding them and and listening listening is valuable. I guess there's a sort of crowdsourcing element element elements as well. So I think assessments are part a part of it. But I'm sure there are there are other there are other ways too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it does. And and thinking back to what David was saying about being able to tell truth from lies, basically, you know, being able to recognize good evidence is part of that, isn't it? Yes. I've yes. Often yes desired a world in which individuals would be able to present the evidence of their qualification, if you know what I mean, to be able to say, okay, here's the job you're offering. Now let me show you what I can do, the evidence about what I can do. Yeah, and, and portfolio, yeah. the whole area of yeah. portfolios is really very interesting. But I mean that is really a kind of assessment I would yeah, suggest. But 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 I certainly not suggesting that sort of classical assessment is the only way to to do things. There are lots of new kinds of assessment. Yes. I thought you probably weren't, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I I was reflecting on your question, Rose, and, and thinking that in theory, I've done a lot of diff different jobs in my life. I mean, you know, I've been a publisher, a programmer, an entrepreneur, a consultant, an investor. But every time I sort of think about it retrospectively, I always think that there are things that I know I do well and things that I know do really badly, you know, across, you know, knowledge, skills, attitudes, capabilities. And so what I'm really interested about is what are those new assessments ai or nia or probably blended you know human plus computer which can really help you understand again to your point a little earlier to help you understand you know who you are and where you might go and, and i always sort of return to those those tests that you get at school my kids still get at test school which basically say yeah you're probably better off being a barrister than a tree surgeon and it's like, I'm not sure how helpful that is anymore. But, you know, something which is more profound than that, the saying, you know, fundamentally, you know, for me, for example, fundamentally, you are too impatient ever to be a teacher. It really wouldn't sue you. However, you might be better at helping people structure conversations would be much more interesting. So that, that's kind of where I go with it. That's what I think is, is really interesting in the context of a portfolio career. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, uh, I, it's kind of like, how do we identify the core themes of your intelligence that you can use in different areas, different parts of your portfolio, different roles that you have. That's really interesting. I have a, a propensity for an enormous amount of impatience with technology. My own children always laugh at me and say, why are you so patient with people and so incredibly impatient with technology. So there are certain jobs that I definitely wouldn't be. Yeah, look, 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 the number of times I get told off by my wife for shouting at my computer, Rose, I'm totally <laughs> Uh, David, over to you for your final word on this question, please. Brilliant. Thanks, Rose. So the two points I would make, and one builds on exactly that that line uh, that, that we're on at the moment. Uh, I absolutely think learners at all ages and stages, one of the goals of education and learning more broadly should be to, to, to give people agency within that journey, agency in their choices at any sort of stage uh, of uh, sort of a, a programme of development. And so to give people agency, I think it's crucial that people understand themselves better. They understand their opportunities. They understand 
their, their ultimate goals and objectives, whether that is, you know, through to the end of a, 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 a short episode of learning or whether that's, you know, over a lifetime and, and a career. Uh, and so I imagined, you know, sort of a diagnostic assessment type approach that is is almost constant that allows you to step off and away from your from your life from your career and from your learning and to understand where you are in reference to whatever your goals or objectives might be but it also shifts dynamically in a way that the world shifts you know so the, the labor market does not stay still the economy does not stay still skills needs do not stay still and this sort of then is i suppose a bridge to my second point um, I remember saying to somebody uh, at, at a point in time that um, biblical trades aside, there isn't an occupation out there that doesn't change radically over, you know, a three, four year cycle. And somebody put their hand up and said, well, actually, David, people who put dry stone walls down are now using GPS, which sort of scuppered my point a little bit about the biblical trades, but it was it was it's sort of an interesting point. And so the, the, that conversation was all about within our technical and vocational education system and actually you could apply it more broadly uh, we do not center on the skills that will enable people to be adaptable to be resilient to be resourceful and you asked me right at the front of, of this rose about you know the, the the human connection and this is really really brief anecdote when my eldest son, son was two i became obsessed about my mortality and was really worried took out the will, sorted my insurances, told my family what, what that needed to happen, even started recording videos that he could watch me from beyond the grave. And it, I couldn't sleep for, for weeks until I rediscovered what was then the World Economic Forum's top 10 skills for 2020. And it was just the relief that I had because I looked and I thought, as long as my boys have got that, because I've got two now, they'll be fine because they'll have analytical brains, they'll be able to solve complex problems, they'll be resilient, they'll be resourceful, they'll be able to make great judgments. You know, as long as I can help them to develop through all sorts of means, not just through mainstream education, but develop those, what I, what I originally called meta skills, because they underpin, amplify and transcend every other skill. If they've got that, they'll be fine. They'll figure it out. So I think fundamentally for me, that is the thing. You know, people understand themselves, their context and their opportunities, but also then develop the deep human skills that prepares them for, for whatever and however the world might change in future. And in our mainstream education, that's on the periphery and typically only on the periphery in the more affluent schools. It's not right. It's not right. We've got to get it to the centre. Absolutely. That's a great way of summing up a lot of what we've been talking about today. I don't feel I need to do any more to sum it up. I think you've just done a brilliant job. Uh, thank you to all three of you. That was a really fascinating discussion. Before I close, I just want to ask each of you if there's any final point you'd want to put to the listener, the thing you want them to take away with them as they leave this episode. John, I'm going to start with you for a quick final thought. So I think be inclusive. Think about how your assessments and your learning can help everybody, not just the bright and the well-off people. Plus one, David, let's think about a new definition of success. I love that, yes. David, shall we just stick with, with what you've just had a plus one on, or would you like to add Yeah, no, thank you. Really kind of you, Nick. Do you know, there's one, one more thing I would say. Life is a team sport. I think it's yes. about time we made learning a team sport too. Great. I love it. Thank you so much, all three of you. I've really, really enjoyed the discussion. And I hope wherever you're listening, you found our discussion informative and practical and uh, you found something that you can use and maybe share with others. 
If you want more information on the series and our wonderful guests, visit the EdTech Podcast website at www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media too. To see how Educate is keeping evidence at the heart of EdTech, go to www.educateventures.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn. Thanks you once again to Learnosity for sponsoring this episode. Head on over to www.learnosity.com to see how they ensure inclusivity remains a core principle in teaching and learning. You've been listening to the Evidence-Based EdTech podcast series performed in collaboration with the EdTech podcast. Presented by myself, Rose Luckin, and I hope you'll tune in to forthcoming episodes in this series because we've got a lot of exciting topics coming up, more conversation about artificial intelligence, this time looking at higher education, we're looking at personalization, and we've also got diversity, ethics, inclusion coming up on the horizon as well. So stay listening.